Hey, podcast fam, Eric here. And if you're an affiliate marketer or looking to monetize your online presence, you need to know about ShareASale.com. ShareASale is not just an affiliate network. It's your gateway to a world of opportunities. With thousands of high-paying affiliate programs across various niches, ShareASale connects you with top brands ready to collaborate with content creators like you. Imagine earning commissions for simply sharing products you love. Whether you're into fashion, tech, or lifestyle, Share a Sale has got a partnership waiting for you. Ready to turn your passion into profits? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash share a sale and sign up today. It's free, it's easy, and, it, and it's your ticket to unlocking a new revenue stream for your business. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia Podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. I'm Gavin, we're back with another episode. Yes. <laughs> Do you got a topic for us today? or Yes. What's the topic so- about? We got uh, Dirty Slots. Dir- dirty Slots Part 3, man. Part 3. You can tell, if you can't tell, it's been a while since we podcasted because <laughs> I completely forgot we had a third part to a... Yeah, Dirty Slots <laughs> so- Part 3. All right, well... This is the final part. Let's see where we go with this, so take her away. All right, so part three uh, is Herman Pastor. Which part... which has come up, uh, who has come up on numerous, yes. all the other episodes, I believe. Yes, right? yes. So, okay. So Herman Pastor served three terms in federal prison throughout his life. The first time was for a bootlegging operation with his wife's uncle, Sammy Taran. Um, we covered that in part one. The second and third times he went to prison were for bringing slot machines over state lines. In one of those cases, it was under the protection of North Dakota Attorney General Elmo Christensen. We covered that in part Part two two of Dirty Slots. So now we're to part three. And is this going to be his final time in prison, basically? Sure. Okay. (laughs) Not a not a very direct answer, but no, okay. <laughs> like no. it's the, he doesn't sound very confident with that. Yeah. So by the 1950s, uh, it appears that Pastor is less involved with slot machines than he had been, or at least he's not getting caught for it anymore. He's less involved with slot machines, and he focuses more on jukeboxes. Uh, and he's really on the wholesale level. Like, he doesn't operate any routes. Like, he doesn't go around and collect the money out of them. He just sells them to other people who do. Gotcha. So he's operating on the on the top end. He's getting a bunch of them from, you know, the manufacturer and, and wholesaling them. But even more so than this, he's becoming successful in real estate business. He owns several shopping centers in the Minneapolis area. And I'm not entirely clear what a shopping center is. Maybe you know. I'm I'm picturing it as a strip mall. That's where my head would go to. Okay. But then again, what where when are we at right now? Like a shopping it, center might be something different. It might know? be. Yeah. So I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I'm picturing it as a strip mall. So he's got the jukebox business going in Minnesota and Milwaukee. So at the Milwaukee Common Council meeting, the city council meeting, in January 1954, Alderman Fred Myers said that he received a serious and sincere complaint about Herman Pastor, that he was seeking to join forces with the Milwaukee man 
to hold a monopoly over vending machines in Milwaukee. The man apparently is not named. Ooh. Yes. Myers said, I'm trying to find out more about it, and he promised to discuss it more the following week. The newspaper speculated that the man in question was Joe Beck, a man who ran the Mitchell Amusement Company and owned 385 coin-operated machines in the city. I don't know if that's a lot or not, but it sounds like a pretty good amount. So this is this is sounding now like we're getting back into gambling machines, right? Because you just said he was, or no, you no, coin-operated no, no. machines. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, coin-operated <laughs> yeah, machines. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yes. The Milwaukee Journal also pointed out that Pastor had a serious criminal record. The Common Council held another meeting a week later to discuss the jukebox trade in Milwaukee. Herman Pastor was invited based on rumors that he was looking to become a major player in the area. He did not intend he did not attend, but he sent the vice president of Pastor Distributing, Alan Nilva, his brother in law. Alan, as you may recall, also had been in prison <laughs> for his part in the slot machine thing. Nilva said the pastor was not in the business of operating coin machines. He was just a wholesale distributor. There was no quote-unquote syndicate behind him. They were not seeking a monopoly. He said, don't worry about it. You know, it's nothing like that. Well, one way or another, apparently they were they were convincing because pastor did set up, well, he already had an office, but he did continue to operate in the Milwaukee area. Whether he joined forces with Joe Beck or not, I don't know. I don't think he did. Despite their concerns, they did nothing to slow down his having jukeboxes in the Milwaukee area. A few years later, 1959, someone put a dynamite bomb in Pastor's office's mailbox. Oh, this sounds like a total MO of the uh, mafia. But it was discovered before exploding. Okay. Nobody was injured. But he was a little scared. <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> yes. Herman Pastor was in Chicago on the morning of October 28th, 1960. He then flew, he drove up to Milwaukee, and then he flew from Milwaukee to St. Paul with his brother-in-law, Alan Nilva, arriving at the airport around 6.30 p.m. His son, Arnold Pastor, age 17, picked up the two men. He dropped off Nilva at his home on Hillcrest Avenue in St. Paul before continuing on to the pastor residence at 1752 Pinehurst Avenue in St. Paul. And these addresses are only like two blocks apart. So they're, I looked it up on the map. Like they're seriously like not even a half mile away. Shortly after getting home, pastor spoke on the phone with car dealer Ralph Kriesel, who had ordered a cord organ. Don't know what's up with that. <laughs> um, Pastor then sat down and relaxed. While relaxing, he was shot in the head while reading a newspaper on the couch in his den. Well, I guess he doesn't go back to jail, huh? <laughs> yeah. He had only been around. He had only been home long enough to make that phone call and take his coat off. He still had the rest of his, you know, his overcoat and his and his shoes. He had the whole deal still going. He didn't even have a beverage yet. Three shots from a thirty-eight pistol came in through his window. Two of them were fatal. One hit him in the jaw and then lodged in his spine at the base of the neck, 
while the other went through his right hand and continued onto his cheek. Pester was actually facing the window at the time, but because a light was on in the house, the killer could see him, but Pastor couldn't see outside. You understand. The people, yeah. people know what that means, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you have a light on and it's nighttime, you just you can't see, see what's outside. out the window, but everybody can see what you're doing in your house. Mm-hmm. Okay. You probably just creeped out like 20% of our viewers or listeners because they didn't realize that. <laughs> it's true, though. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> the bullet holes in the window were all within a three-inch circle, suggesting the killer was standing very close to the window or was a really good shot. Pastor died approximately 20 minutes after being shot in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. He was 57 years old. So he must have still been into some shady stuff if somebody's coming to shoot him that usually would imply (laughs) that yeah the police chief called the murder one that quote reaches high into the circles of national crime unquote the yard was roped off to look for footprints or cartridges several neighbors reported hearing a car backfire or firecrackers but did not recognize that those were the sound of gunshots (laughs) Police speculated a silencer may have been used. Passenger lists were checked to see if any known mob killers had come or gone between Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago, or Las Vegas. Uh, They did not find anybody. Shortly after the murder, police stood watch at Pastor Enterprises, his real estate business, in the case that somebody tried to burglarize the building. This is actually, like, it sounds kind of weird, but this is actually a pretty normal thing, at least in the mob. I don't know if it's normal in the rest of the world, but a lot of times when a mob guy or, or somebody who has mob connections is killed, they'll like immediately also like ransack his stuff or you know they might have killed him for a specific reason yeah. and then they go in and get that evidence out of his office. So this is actually not that unusual. I'm kind of impressed that they even thought to do that. The newspapers pointed out that Minneapolis hoodlum, Jake Resnick, was shot in the back of the head on September 24th, this was only about a month before, while sitting in his car at Theodore Worth Park, which is, you know, in the Minneapolis area. I don't know where that is, but if you're in Minneapolis, <laughs> you probably know where that is. There was no clear link between the two. Police speculated the killer, of, at least of Resnick, was a gambler with a grudge, a former burglary, burglary buddy of Resnick's, or somehow linked to his uncle, Morris Mummy Resnick, who was in prison for a different murder. So, probably no connection between Resnick and Pastor, but, eh, you know, when two uh, two crime guys get killed near around the same time, you got to look into it. Mm-hmm. The murder was never solved. Imagine that, huh? Yes. <laughs> and in fact, what's really weird, what's really weird to me is the chief speaks to the press, and he's like, this reaches to the highest levels of national crime. Um, which, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's what he says. But it it drops out of the news really fast. Like, there's almost no follow-up that I was able to find. And I've always found this strange. And um, in the police file, they, they will not release it. I've asked for it, and they will not release it. Um, which, you know, that's it's a Minnesota. If this was a Wisconsin case, they'd probably give it to me. But Minnesota has different open records laws in Wisconsin deaths, so. I'm just curious, could it 
Have you ever researched to see like around the time frame when this happened? Did something else possibly significant either happen in the world or in Minneapolis itself that would cause this to get pushed back to... I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, you know, maybe some other bit high profile murder happened right around the same time. So like this spent a couple days in the newspaper and then just disappeared because the news was already over onto this next crime or whatever. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, I don't know that answer, but that's... It, it seems reasonable. Yeah, that I could mean. be. That could be. But yeah, it doesn't It doesn't really get solved. Uh, only thing that really happens after that is his estate ends up getting in some serious trouble with the tax courts because they found that he was doing some uh, some questionable bookkeeping. Um, not, not like questionable as far as like mob stuff, but questionable in that he put a lot of his money in trusts for his children, but he wasn't treating it like a trust. He was still taking money in and out of it all the time. And I don't know anything about tax law or trusts or anything like that. But apparently when you put money in trust, you're not supposed to keep yeah. using that money. So I, I'm surprised that he's able to pull it out. I would just think that something would automatically trigger that would tell somebody... He's taking money out of this that he's not supposed to be taking out. But. Yeah. So he his well, he didn't, he was dead, but his estate got in some <laughs> trouble for that. Um and he ends up having to pay well, he again not having to pay, his estate having to pay <laughs> an additional sixty nine thousand dollars, which that's significant money for taxes. The business that he had with the vending machines, the jukeboxes, that sort of thing ends up getting taken over by another company um, out of Milwaukee mm-hmm. called Pioneer Sales and Service, sometimes called Pioneer Vending. And I have to be kind of careful how I talk about Pioneer because Pioneer still exists. Mm-hmm. So I, I, won't, I won't be too mean to them. But they ended up taking over um, the business. At the time they took over, there was speculation that they had hidden owners in Cleveland or Chicago. Um, but when they were questioned, the owners were questioned by the FBI, uh, the owners denied it. Uh, they did know that they had a financial interest in some uh, Chicago jukebox companies that had some questionable ties. Um, they did know some questionable people in the jukebox business, which really isn't that unusual. Because the jukebox business was so crooked anyways, right? Right. At this point that... That if you were in the business, you probably knew somebody that was tied to somebody. Yeah, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't at all be unusual, even if you were completely clean for you to know some questionable jukebox people. So, uh, yeah, so they seem pretty clean. What strikes me as kind of odd is that one of the top guys at Pioneer Sales and Service um, had previously been an employee of pastors. I assume that he kind of migrated over when they purchased it. Uh, And his name was Sam Cooper. Okay. And what strikes me about that is Sam Cooper was super, super close with Frank Balistrieri. Okay. So uh, it took us to part three, but we're finally coming back around (laughs) to Milwaukee Mafia. Um, And he was so close that, like, uh, when when Frank's kids were growing up, they would they would call him Uncle Sam. They knew him as Uncle Sam, uh, so they were he was very close as part of the family. 
But what was also interesting about this is we know now, this is only new in the last couple of years, we know now that Sam Cooper was also feeding information to the FBI. Oh. So while they were investigating Frank Bale Street for his jukeboxes and other coin-operated devices, one of the main guys they were getting information from was Sam. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to me that like Sam, Sam is like in this weird position where he's gained financially from Herman Pastor dying. And I'm not saying that to like imply that he killed Pastor because I don't think he did, but he's gained financially from that. He's buddies with mob figures, but this whole time he's also an FBI informant. So Sam Cooper is an interesting character for sure. So how how is it that we just recently found out that Sam Cooper was an informant? Is oh. it just that file you weren't nobody was able to get access to it until recently or Yes. Okay. So nobody was able to get access to it because they never release informant files. Okay. And they never even tell you the names of informants. Um sometimes you can figure it out. There's there's a couple that you can figure out because of the way that they word the files. But the reason we found out about Sam in the last couple of years is there was a big push to get all of the JFK assassination files released. Okay. And there's absolutely no connection. Between, I was just going to say, like, how is this guy connected yeah. to the JFK assassination? There's no connection whatsoever between the JFK assassination, Sam Cooper, or any of this. For whatever reason... When the National Archives collected all of their documentation on the JFK assassination, they had a very wide net. And so they scooped up all kinds of FBI documents, CIA documents, um, things from different embassies. Like, they were very, very thorough. Um, And a lot of this stuff came up because when they were looking into the background of Jack Ruby, we're going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but it's, well, I'll come back around. When they were looking into Jack Ruby, who's the guy who shot Oswald, who is the guy who allegedly shot JFK, when they were looking into Jack Ruby, um, Jack Ruby was a gambler, and he had grown up in Chicago, and he knew a lot of the Chicago gamblers. And he also happened to be Jewish. So they did a very thorough investigation going around to all these mob-connected guys who happen to be Jewish. Sam Cooper happens to be Jewish. Um, So he has no real connection to any of this. Like, he never met JFK. He probably didn't even meet Jack Ruby. But they were so thorough in looking into this. They scooped up a lot of really unrelated stuff. So basically, they scooped up Sam Cooper's file to see if maybe he was associated with it. And once they opened the file, they realized there's nothing in here to suggest that he could possibly be associated with JFK's assassination. Essentially, yeah. Basically. Essentially, yeah. And and so when things have been being released over the last few years, they've been releasing things they don't normally release to the public. Um, if somebody is marked as a high-ranking informant, what they call a top echelon informant, those names are still blacked out. Like, the National Archives is very good about not releasing that. But if you're just a regular informant, those names have now been made public. The vast majority of them are dead anyway, so it's not like it's a big deal. But 
the FBI's policy is even if they're dead, they don't ever release it. So it is kind of neat to be able to see some of these guys' names go public. Anyway, circling back, one of those was Sam Cooper. So we now know that Sam Cooper, while being one of Frank Pelstreet's tight business buddies, was also regularly telling the FBI about Frank's jukebox business. Do so, we have any idea what got what turn? Do, like, do these files say what turns somebody? Like, I assume Sam Cooper got into some sort of trouble, and this is basically yeah. like a deal he made to get, keep himself out of prison or whatever. I don't but, have that information. There's okay. probably something there, but I don't have that yet. Like, so Sam Cooper is the subject of a file. I don't have that file yet. Okay. And that I can have that file because that's not his informant file. That's him as like the subject of an investigation file. So someday I will have that and I could probably give you a better answer. But I mean, I don't know that he was ever in any real trouble, but it may have been that this prevented him from getting in some kind of trouble. I don't know. I mean, this is all speculation. For all I know, could have been a completely clean and wonderful person and just happened mm-hmm. to have some questionable friends. I don't know. So I don't want to I don't want to talk bad about the guy, but he was definitely looked into. We'll we'll come back to that one I know more. Mm-hmm. So someday, someday, someday we'll have a <laughs> Sam Cooper episode. But uh, yeah. So, some questions for this is first of all. So you said this pioneer vending or whatever the proper name of it is for. Yeah. So Sam Cooper worked for them, correct? Yes. So, and he was definitely tied to the mafia. Yes. Now, it could just be that Sam Cooper had a job at a vending company and happened to have a lot of ties to the mafia. Yes. But is there any other evidence to point that this pioneer company may have been, you know, the mafia may have had some control over the company? I don't. Other than Sam Cooper? I don't think so. Like, so... I, I don't have that in front of me to give you a great answer, but there weren't that many companies. There was Pioneer, and there's another company called London. And I know that Frank knew the guys who ran both of these companies. But I don't know that that necessarily means anything other than that he was a big purchaser of what they were selling. selling right. So... Um, they definitely were always like treated by the FBI, like they were shady. But I've never seen anything like concrete Agreed about that. that. that, shows it, that yeah, the company was actually up to something. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of lot of mob guys, not just Frank, but like throughout the nation, who relied heavily on vending machines, jukeboxes, anything that was you know coin operated. But uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the people supplying those are shady. Some of them absolutely were. I mean, there were companies in Chicago, I could tell you, were super crooked. Mm-hmm. But I but I can't say that with any certainty about Pioneer or London, just that they happen to know these guys, which it's, you know, it's Milwaukee. It's not that small or big of a town that you wouldn't if you were like a major customer. So... The reason I asked that question is my mind goes to that the mafia had Herman Pastor killed off so that this pioneer mm-hmm. could purchase it and hope, 
they would re-benefit from that in some way. Right. And I don't know that, and, and I don't want to suggest that too strongly, but at the same time, that sometimes I do approach things like that, where if you want to know who committed a crime, you ask yourself who benefited from that crime. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily give you the answer, but it's one way to approach it. And in this particular case, Pioneer is clearly someone who definitely benefited from this. Right. Like the real estate business just went to Pastor's kids, and they still to this day own it. His grandchildren own it to this day. So the only people who benefited from that are his kids and his grandkids, who I can tell you are not the people who killed him. (laughs) So, um, So they're ruled out. But the fact that Pioneer and other companies know so many shady guys, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they would have wanted to buy up his business. I could see that, but I also see if the only tie you can make pioneer in the mafia is mm-hmm. the Sam Cooper guy. Yeah. I I feel like if for and me, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I would think that for the mafia to want to kill somebody to allow this company to buy the company, they would have to have quite a hold on that company. I think that's fair. And And it doesn't seem like there's, if they did have that strong of a hold on this company, I feel like there would be more of a trail. We would know more of that. Not to say that it's not possible. Right. But it just doesn't seem very likely to me because, I mean, you can only tie one guy. It could be as simple as like Frank Balistrieri said, hey, go get a job at this company so I have an inside guy. Right. You know, and that that could be the only connection between the mafia and this company. That's it. And other than Frank probably bought equipment from them as well. Right. So. Yeah. And and that's the thing. Like there's there's too many unknowns. I would definitely not go out on a limb and say that there is that connection there. I mean, I'm kind of going back and forth on it during this podcast because I can see the, the possibility, but I also like there's nothing concrete. Like yeah. you would not bother to actually pursue that. Right. Uh, exactly. So, uh, but you know, I don't know. Like I'm, there's so many unknowns for me where I'm still waiting on the information on Sam Cooper, on some of these other things. And it could turn out to be nothing. It could be an absolute dead end. More often than not, they are dead ends. I mean, the FBI investigated all kinds of things that didn't matter. But for me, as an outsider, I'm I'm waiting on that information because I don't know the answers. And I would love to know more about it, even if it's completely innocent, just to get a better understanding of the business relationship. Mm-hmm. And absolutely going back to the point of the like, because we're kind of we're kind of side side going off on a on a trail here with Pioneer, which was not the intent of this episode. <laughs> Sorry, uh, no, it's okay. But um, but with Herman Pastor, I would love that they would release that murder file. That murder file is over sixty years old. It should be released. I have no control over that. Minnesota has stricter open records laws than Wisconsin does, and. I can't do much about that. And they're not releasing it because technically it's unsolved. Exactly. Essentially. Exactly. So it's interesting, but I don't know because 
I'm going to be, I'm always the guy that speculates on the podcast. Gavin looks at just evidence, but I try to, to yeah. me, to me, this sounds like I, something we know he was killed for some reason that we know nothing about mm-hmm. that. There's no evidence of of him ever doing something, but he did something and got him killed. Or, I mean, the dude was technically in prison three times. I mean, during his, even if he wasn't crooked, at this point in his life and he was just legitimately running a vending machine business. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if something from his past caught up to him and, you know, somebody took revenge on him for something he did right. many, many years ago. And to tie, tie those two together would be virtually impossible right? because he's done enough crappy things in his <laughs> life to, <laughs> to, uh, to have made a lot of enemies. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. But like that's see, and that's why I wish they would release the file because I, I suspect that even if you couldn't solve the case, there would be just some amazingly priceless stuff in there. Now it could turn out that what the police uncover goes in a completely different direction than anything that I care about. It could be totally just a bunch of Minneapolis stuff. And I don't really care about the Minneapolis crime scene. That's not my thing. As, even though we've been really dwelling on that, <laughs> it's not my thing. But I would be shocked if during their investigation, they didn't question guys in Milwaukee and be like, hey, you've done business with him. What do you know? This and that. And that's what I want to see. Even if that's not the answer to the murder. I would love to see who they talked to and what those people said mm-hmm. because it would give us such a better picture of what kind of business connections he had in Milwaukee, and, and uh, it, which for my purposes is really what I want to know. And I think it would, it would, I mean, I haven't read a lot of like police files and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but the stuff that you have talked about on this podcast, they always talk to people and people Everybody has their opinion on who did it. Yeah. And it would be really nice to know the other, you know, people that were there's opinions around him. Yeah. Because that gives you somewhere, somewhere to go with it. Like right now, from what it sounds like, you know, he got shot, but okay, where do you go from there to look for any more information? Yeah. Because there, there's no direction. You don't have no idea who, no. the only direction we really have is, could it be the mafia, Milwaukee mafia? Because of this tie to the vending machine company. Right. Which seems really loose. It's extremely loose. Yeah. So. It's extremely loose. Because even though that link is there, I would be perfectly honest with you. I wouldn't make them my top suspects. I'm sure he had far more enemies in Minneapolis, St. Paul than he had in Milwaukee. You know, for whatever reason. Mm Mm-hmm. Like like you're saying, it yeah. could be something that we don't know. And they did do, I mean, unless Milwaukee's contacting the Minnesota Mafia, which I bet you they weren't really tight with. Not not terribly, Because no. they weren't Italian, right. for the most part. Um, and, and saying, hey, we need you to put a hit out on this guy. <laughs> you know, they did do look into known mafia hitmen and none of them they had any record of coming to minnesota in the 50s i feel like those records are probably i mean still even today those records are probably well but those people are probably being followed constantly right 
if you're in no uh, some, one, some of them are, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, but I mean, it just seems unlikely that they sent somebody up there to make the hit. Seems unlikely they would have somebody to call up there to make the hit for them. So yeah. it just doesn't seem like it's very possible that they are risking. No, I agree. I agree. But yeah, there's just, there's too many unknowns in this. Like we, we know he was shot, but we don't know why. We don't know who. We know really nothing. And I, Sure, the police got a lot farther on this than the newspapers ever knew. So. Right. And so I'd love to see it, but yeah. Well, if we have a Minnesota whatever person that that is listening to this podcast, talk to your peeps, man. Get this record released. Yeah. So so we can do another episode about this. Yeah, that's the problem with it is is and again, I'm not by any stretch like an expert on Minnesota open records law. But my assumption is to get it released, you'd basically have to sue. Really? Like yeah. like unsolved murders, they just don't do it in Minnesota? I, that is my impression. Oh. And it's not like it's not that big of a deal to sue. It sounds it sounds like a big deal when you say, Oh, you gotta sue them. It's really not that big of a deal. Like people sue the FBI all the time to get documents released. Um, it's just I don't personally I don't want to do it. But second of all, I don't even know if I can mm-hmm. because I wonder if you have to be a Minnesota resident to even do it. Right. Because I have no right to a Minnesota document. It is really a shame, though, and anybody out there that's in this field, it's really a shame that a murder that occurred, what, 50, 60 years ago at this mm-hmm. point? Yeah. And they won't release the file. Like, yeah. come on. I mean, I'm sorry. That's just my opinion, but it's just, you obviously, the likelihood that they're ever going to do anything with that murder case again is so remote that, that it, like, it is like, and all you're doing is like letting poor podcasters not be able to tell the <laughs> full story. Really. Yeah. But that's, I mean, but that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's sitting, it's sitting somewhere. It's collecting dust. It's not getting solved. And I've always made the argument that one or two things are going to happen if you release it. Um, one, nothing, because all the suspects are probably dead anyway. Or two, you've re- released information to the public, and the public has the missing piece that you didn't know you needed. And they'll give it to you once they know, like, oh, I remember that, but... You know, but they don't know that you are looking for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm being kind of vague because that could be anything. Okay, yeah. But like sometimes that'll spark people's memory if you just release a little bit more and people are like, oh, yeah, I knew that guy. He was a, ooh. <laughs> right. And the fact that that information isn't publicly known and people can't get the message out. I mean, you're you're just further <laughs> yeah. hurting the case at this point. Really. At this point, Yeah. yeah. So yeah, because it's not like they have any DNA or anything they could run back and test again. So yeah. Well, Herman Pasture, we're sorry that nobody ever found out who yeah, killed you. Yeah. So someday, maybe. Um. Probably not. <laughs> I actually, and I should have led on this on the episode with this, but I did have a listener give me feedback about one of these episodes. I'm not sure which one. Oh. But in one of the episodes, we talked about the Minnesota mafia and how you explained that Italians weren't really prevalent. Right. And did you say it was Jewish? Yeah. So 
this this listener, I believe he lived in Minnesota around this area, or maybe he had family up there, but he said it wasn't actually Jewish. The predominant one was Polish. Okay. Of the mafia. So so just thought now this is just somebody telling me this, so that could be inaccurate too. But I figure I know he's gonna listen to this podcast and he'd probably yell at me if I didn't mention it. Okay. So I'm mentioning it. So well, the the primary group that I'm aware of was Jewish, and I believe and, he did say that, like, yeah, there was a lot of Jewish, but yeah. like the Polish, like, owned, yeah, the Minneapolis St. Paul, and that could that could very well be, but yeah, so. like the ones that like are kind of known organized crypt. There's the the big name, like, which is going to mean nothing to you, but like the big name in the Minnesota area was a guy named Kid Can. And, like, that's not his real name. That was what they called him. Um, his last name was, like, Blumenfeld or something. But they, he went by Kid Can. Um, and his brother was a guy named Yiddy Bloom. And, like, they were, like, the guys. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know. I, it's not my thing. I yeah. don't know a whole lot about it. But Well, well our, our, our Minnesota Mafia expert can... Email us at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com yeah. and tell us, are we are we right? Was it Polish? Was it Jewish? What was it? So Yeah. So we don't know. But but I just figured I'd throw that out there. Yeah. I so, mean I I nothing I've spent a whole lot of time on, so I don't know. So but again, we leave the episode, this big long three episode series, and what happens? The guy gets shot and killed, and the murder doesn't get solved. Yeah, I'm starting to see a theme with your stories, man. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. And that's I got to I got to tell you right now. Any murders coming up, uh, I don't think a lot of them get solved either. <laughs> if you're looking for the solvery to get pick up, it's not going to happen anytime. But soon. at least the ones that happened in Wisconsin, I can generally get the records for. So we so, we know well, we know more about what happened. It. Yeah. So. Well, that's the end of the dirty slot business. Yeah. And, and I don't know. Do you got anything else for him for this episode? No, or? I'm actually surprised we went this long on it. All right. Then we <laughs> can uh, do our normal. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. As always, we have a Patreon. Mm-hmm. And that Patreon can get you access to bonus episodes, free T-shirts, free... Free, uh, even a free in-person session with Gavin. Yeah. And I, I'm drawing a blank on what else it can get you, but you can jump over to you the- You can be well, a guest host on the podcast. Oh, yes, and a guest host on the podcast. Yeah. That is correct. I'm going to say, I don't know if any of these things are really free because you got to pay the Patreon, <laughs> but, but yes, but yes, there are perks. And the most important thing is you can put money or put food in Gavin's tummy. Oh yeah, is that the that's, most? Important that's the thing? number one motivator. Anything, then don't please don't sign up for Patreon. <laughs> I, I need a little less of that, but um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, we do we do appreciate it. We we bring this to you each time for free, and I mean, we enjoy doing it. But you know, getting we, getting a good dollar here or there doesn't hurt either. Yeah, we love the mo- we love the contributions, but the number one thing is we just appreciate that you listen to the podcast. Yeah, because this is actually I don't know. It's fun for me. Sounds I think fun. it's fun for Gavin. Yeah, I enjoy it. So, and, and, but you know, there are bills to pay and things like that. Yeah, so. that's true. So, Gavin, you want to do your thing? 
That's it, man. Like, no. just email milwaukeemafia at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, concerns, corrections. Um, you can go to milwaukeemafia.com, which is the website that has all kinds of fun stuff, including the actual FBI files that I reference. Um, and it's in the middle of a, another major overhaul. We got a major overhaul about a year ago, and it's getting another one again. Yeah. So you will you will not see a difference right now on it, but it's, yeah, it's coming along, and we'll probably we'll let you know when it's fully fully up. Yeah. So, so. we took what was already an incredibly awesome overhaul, and and went another step. So, so and it's going to be the best darn website out there soon. And, and I and I gotta say, like what we're seeing right now on it, it looks pretty deep pretty yeah you know like yeah it looks real nice so yeah so. i think people will be impressed so yeah. yeah there you go check that out come back for another episode and send patreon questions because we have zero yeah we're really low on that so, so so whether you are a patreon subscriber or not send us questions that you want us to tackle on there and we'll tackle them on there it can be literally anything yes all right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll be back next week with the Patreon and in two weeks with another episode. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. <laughs>